Okay, welcome to Educate for Life. I'm your host, Kevin Conover. My website's educateforlife.org, and we're broadcasting from down here in Southern California, and um, we're on KPraise, 12, 10 a.m. every weekend, and we've got all kinds of shows up there that you can listen to and watch. Um, and from scientists all over the world, we have people that have uh, converted out of Islam, for example. We have uh, discussions with experts on Islam. There's all kinds of stuff. You can check them out on my website, educateforlife.org. And we've uh, uh, got over 100 shows up there. And uh, we've had Greg Kokel on the show uh, several times and uh, been blessed to have him. And uh, joining us today is Alan Schliemann. And Alan, you've been with uh, Stand to Reason since 2004. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It's about, I guess it's about 15 or 16 years. I have been. It's been that's a pleasure and a blessing, and I'm super humbled by it. Yeah, that's, that, it's an incredible ministry. And um, I just love the, the attitude uh, that Stand to Reason has, which is basically being winsome. And, uh, but at the same time, being uh, committed to solid uh, logic and thought about difficult issues uh, from a biblical perspective. And so that's fantastic. That's right. Yeah. So our, yeah, our mission really is to train Christians to be able to persuasively, but as you kind of mentioned, graciously share their convictions. And so, um, yeah, I think we take the model from what scripture talks about where it says that we're ambassadors for Christ. Since we represent Jesus, we at Standard Reason kind of ask the question, what does it take to be an effective ambassador? And so we typically will highlight three key areas, knowledge, wisdom, and character. Knowledge is the information that we need to know. Wisdom is how to communicate that knowledge. And then character is having a winsome and gracious approach in, in the way we do it. And yeah, so, I love it. I love it. Yeah. A lot of times apologists get a reputation for being um, uh, kind of cold uh, <laughs> and factual. And so... Some people get turned off. They're just like, oh, man, you just want to argue. Right. Um, but that's not what, we, what uh, you're trying to do. That's right. Yeah, we're, we're basically trying to equip believers. So we're, try, we're, we're about creating a certain kind of person, and that is an ambassador for Christ. So our goal is to come alongside believers, help them understand you know, what we believe as Christians, why we believe it, and how to articulate it, again, persuasively, but also graciously. Yeah. And, you know, um, today we're going to be covering bioethics. And uh, this is an interesting subject because, you know, it comes up a lot of times in movies and different things. There is a uh, Netflix uh, documentary that came out not too long ago called Unnatural Selection, which talks about gene editing. And then, but this issue is, is very old also because um, yeah. the Catholic Church, uh, you know, banned, banned um, any sort of... Uh, um, Ability, birth control. yeah, birth control, yeah. Or contraception, and yeah, so yeah. it's interesting that Protestants don't hold the same view as Catholics. We're, you know, uh, we both say that the Bible is the Word of God and it's true, but yet um, the Catholic Church comes on the on, on the side that really that contraception, um, if it's man-made, is evil, is intrinsically evil. And um, would you say that that's a bioethics issue, Alan? Um, well, it, well, it's a theological position that touches on a bioethical issue for sure. Okay. I mean, they, of course, would affirm natural family planning, which yeah. is not using necessarily the, the kind of technologies that, you know, like, for example, uh, intrauterine devices or, you know, birth control pills and so on and so forth. Uh, so, yeah, like many topics, there's um, crossing over of like theology into science and bioethics and so on and so forth. So a lot of what we'll probably be talking about today cover, you know, uh, overlaps into those areas. Yeah. And I think this is part of, you know, the, the whole thinking clearly issue, because a lot of times bioethics issues, um, like you said, they kind of filter into different areas of our lives. 
And um, sometimes when we least expect it, all of a sudden there's an issue that's in front of us and we go, whoa, I've never thought about this before. This is something I've dealt with before. And especially with technology, with gene editing and what they're doing now, um, I, I... MIT, I guess, is making glow-in-the-dark plants, I've heard. And uh, <laughs> this is going to put the, uh, the Christmas lights, uh, you know, this is going to be a problem for the, the Christmas lights uh, industry. They're, they're going to have glow-in-the-dark trees and everything. And so, uh, Well, if it's anything like the movie Avatar, where those plants are just kind of glowing at night, yeah. like, that would actually be pretty cool. I yeah. don't have too many ethical consider- concerns about that. That would oh, okay, okay. be welcome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They said it's gonna it's gonna solve the the uh, electrical issue for everybody because everybody's gonna have glow in the dark plants and and you'll have light wherever you go. So I thought that was well. Pretty we already. Ha- I mean, yeah. Uh, my suspicion is they're probably utilizing uh, luciferin, uh, which is that um, I forgot what it is exactly, but it's found in a lot of different creatures already. My my daughter I know recently did a a science fair project using dinoflagellates, which are these single celled organisms that have this um it's an enzyme or something but it glows right yeah yeah yeah. and uh you know living in san diego we've had that uh the uh when there's a whole bunch of these organisms uh in the in the water when yeah water gets um disturbed they glow blue and so you can go at night and see like an entire wave turn blue with these things so my suspicion is they're probably using that particular uh capacity or ability that these you know that god's kind of invested creation with and using it to perhaps put it onto some sort of plants, I guess. So that's, that's kind of the question is, you know, where is that line? Where is the line between, okay, God has given us this and we can modify it versus, mm-hmm. okay, hold on, um, you're taking that too far. Uh, what, what, how, do you, how do you distinguish that, Alan? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I, so I believe that, and I think this is consistent with the Christian worldview, that God has given us creation and that we are able to use it for our, our benefit, you know, for, for feeding ourselves, for clothing ourselves. Uh, he's also given us our minds to be able to take what we see from creation and be able to use it for medicinal purposes. Okay. Now the, the problem occurs when we start doing things that not just attempt to help people, but in the process end up killing innocent human beings. Uh, and so obviously when we start experimenting with humans, uh, and I would, you know, I would clarify that a human being is a human being from the moment it, he or she is created to his or her natural death. So once we start taking these human beings and putting them in certain kinds of experiments or manipulating them in such a way that ends up killing them, well, then I think it becomes a problem. And so, uh, you know, there are all kinds of possible directions that this might come from in terms of biotechnologies, because with the increase in our capacity to harness, you know, um, uh, creatures or, you know, uh, enzymes and proteins and, and to be able to edit humans in certain ways, then this creates more opportunities for there to be abuse. And so scientists often will ask the question, can we do something but oftentimes they don't ask the question, should we? Mm. And that's when, that's when we can run into trouble, I think. So, so from what you said, you know, the, the, the dividing line is, are we hurting an innocent person? Um, obviously, Scripture teaches that that's, you know, we should never do that. Um, are there other bioethical lines not to cross? Uh, you know, it's been in the movies forever uh, that 
if you uh, advance artificial intelligence too much, robots will take over the world and uh, you know, we'll all be in big trouble. Um, are there other ethical uh, lines that you know, in your research and in your studying that we have to be careful of crossing that are directly related to a biblical worldview? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, so I would probably put these not as high a priority as the protection of innocent human beings, but I think that God has called us to be good stewards of creation. Um, that may not mean that we pursue the protection of, of the created world to the degree that you might see someone with a non-biblical worldview pursuing it, you know, uh, PETA, or the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, sure. or, you know, various environmental organizations. Um, Again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about creatures, you know, and, and needlessly kill animals or torture animals or just pollute the environment. Not at all saying that. In fact, I would argue that as Christians, we can ground our concern for creation and our desire and our command to care for creation far better than, say, a naturalist, someone who doesn't believe that there's a God or, or any kind of mandate to do that. So... Certainly, we're called to care for creation and be good stewards of creation. So I would say that another ethical line might, be, might exist where we might be doing something that is recklessly endangering um, our environment or uh, you know, needlessly killing or torturing animals. Like Obviously, I think that would be wrong. We shouldn't do that. Yeah. Um, does that mean that we never involve animals or creation or, or risk anything? Uh, in order to try to find cures for disease and disability? Well, no, but it also means that we shouldn't be reckless with it as well. So there could be those kinds of questions and, and lines that could be drawn, um, but I don't think that they would take precedent over, say, a line where we are now endangering or killing innocent human beings. Because okay. from, a world, from a Christian worldview, it's only human beings who are made in God's image, not any other creatures. Yeah, absolutely. And that, so like you said, we're supposed to be stewards over creation um, and sometimes, you know, putting animals to good use in, in ways that are responsible and um, like you said, not reckless. Um, so for those of you listening, my guest today is Alan Schliemann and he's with Stand to Reason. Uh, that's str.org. They have all kinds of incredible resources on their website um, that are a big help in answering difficult questions. And, you know, Alan, um, I was looking up, you know, bioethics issues. Uh, some of the issues that come up are uh, end-of-life care. You know, how do we allocate resources to take care of uh, those who need them as they're coming to the end of their life? Um, there's the issue of eugenics. There's the issue of euthanasia, um, uh, possibly organ donation, these sorts of things. Um, so when you're dealing with things like, I think the big issues for Christians are eugenics, euthanasia, probably abortion. Um, are those the main issues that Christians need to deal with when it comes to, um, you know, uh, identifying where those uh, ethical lines are? Uh, yeah. So I, I would also include, and perhaps you meant this, uh, physician-assisted suicide, which yeah. is, is sort of a precursor to euthanasia, which you know, physicians is a suicide is what actually has become legal in several states around the country. Yeah. Um, uh, so yes, those, and then also um, stem cell research and cloning are, are huge, huge industries and where we've had multiple propositions that have been passed into law, both at the federal level uh, and in other levels that, you know, is moving forward as we speak. And especially, you know, you and I living in the San Diego County, 
there's a lot of biotech industry and a lot of stem cell research stuff going on there. Yeah. So yeah, so those would all be included in there. Uh, can we uh, dive trans- in? Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, and then transhumanism is probably the, the next thing that's on the frontier where we are trying to modify, enhance uh, humans to be either live longer or be, you know, faster, stronger, smarter through various biotechnologies. So I think that would also be a, an, an additional one. And how is, how is that transhumanism? How is that an ethical issue? Can you explain that? Well, uh, it can be an ethical issue where we are doing experiments on humans, and a lot of these experiments involve trial and error. I mean, uh, gene editing, also uh, some people might hear of the term CRISPR, yeah, which is an acronym, uh, C-R-I-S, I think it's P-R, but it's an acronym for a type of gene editing, which is, which is a subtopic uh, or a, a subheading of transhumanism in general where they're trying to edit the human genome like you would edit, say, uh, a Microsoft Word document, you know, Word processor. You have a sentence, and you go in there and kind of edit that sentence. Well, we're trying to do that with human genomes, but of course, that results in, in various trials and errors, and a lot of those errors can result in the death of an innocent human being because we're not doing them um, according to the consent of adults. We're doing them on, on human beings at the embryonic level. Uh, and so these these are human beings that don't have the possibility of consent. Mm. Um, and so that's why I would say certain aspects of transhumanism would be concerning. Not all of them, you know. Um, you know, I suppose if you try to uh, develop a technology that made somebody's, um, let's say they had a disability or an amputation, and so we gave them an artificial leg, you know, so they could walk better. Or you know, like I, I don't have concerns that way. But again, when the, when the technologies involve the death of innocent human beings, now I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so the issue, so transhumanism, uh, I see what you're saying. So whenever, I mean, th- back in the America's history, there was a huge problem with this where they were conducting uh, psychological experiments on people um, without their consent, really, um, even with children. And mm. uh, you look at some of that stuff and you're like, how did they get away with this? Yeah. Uh, it was a huge eth- ethical issue. Um, and so uh, what about, you, you said that the, the stem cell industry, um, where are they crossing the line? I know for a long time, you know, that the, the argument was you don't need fetuses, stem cells in order to do uh, research. You can, you can take, um, you know, cells that, um, stem cells that aren't necessarily from a, a, a a baby or a, a God forbid, an aborted baby. But um, you said that's going on now. That's being advanced. Yeah. So, so stem cells are being extracted from human embryos at the embryonic stage. So typically when a human is conceived after sperm and egg, you know, come together, uh, that first stage is called uh, a zygote. Okay. So when a human being is just at a single cell, but within the first week, around three to five days, that human being develops what's into a stage called blastocyst or the blastocyst stage. And at that point, a human being, you and I would have what's called stem cells or pluripotent stem cells, which are, which all stem cell is, is just a, a general cell. In other words, you know, um, you and I as adults, we probably have like 200 different types of specialized cells, like brain cells, hair cells, bone cells, eye cells. Well, all a stem cell is is a general cell that has not yet been assigned a specific to become a specific type of cell. 
And so when you're just three to five days old as an embryo, your body, quote unquote, consists of pluripotent stem cells, which are what scientists are eager to harvest and remove from the developing human embryo. The ethical problem with this is that when they remove those stem cells from a developing human embryo, it ends up killing the developing human embryo because that's the stem cells. Those stem cells are what the human's going to use to create the rest of its body, its brain, its spinal cord, its heart, its, you know, all that stuff. So scientists want to extract these stem cells, but that ends up killing an innocent human being. And that's the problem. That's one of the problems with embryonic stem cell research. Now, are they able to get stem cells without killing a, you know, killing an embryo? Um, do they? I, uh, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. I was going to say, you know, my understanding at one point in time, at least, was that, um, you know, the, the Christian argument, the biblical perspective was, look, every, all the research that needs to be done can be done without taking the stem cells from an embryo. Um, we don't need to do that. Uh, so why are we allowing that to be the case? Is that, is that correct or is there yeah, that's, information there? Exactly, yeah. So uh, embryonic stem cell research was, is and was a big thing. Um, but as you pointed out, many people said, look, there's another way to get stem cells. And that's to get stem cells from adult human beings. And so there was some pushback to this because it was, it was once thought that adult stem cells that are found on bodies like yours and mine as adults were not able to be coaxed into turning into whatever. You know? So for example, you take a stem cell from a human embryo that thing has the, put, the potential to turn into any part of a human body, you know, any one of those 200 different types of specialized cells. Mm. It was thought at a time that adult stem cells, which exist in our body, could not be coaxed into turning into any particular type of uh, specialized cell. Now, that has since been debunked, and we now realize and know that you can take a stem cell from your arm or my arm, and we can coax that into turning into whatever type of tissue we want, say heart muscle tissue. And then we can implant that into a human body that might have a damaged heart as a result of a, of a heart attack. So yeah, that is a way to do that. But you know, um, the problem is, is that not everybody has a concern with killing innocent human embryos. <laughs> it's only, well, it's not only, but Christians or somebody with a Christian worldview or somebody that sees innocent human beings as valuable is going to be a one who's concerned with, you know, killing innocent human embryos. But for the scientists that, you know, just says, Hey, look, if it can be done, it should be done. And Hey, this is a, a new frontier in, in science and, and medicine, man, let's go ahead and also use embryos. Let's, let's look, let's, let's take stem cells from embryos. Let's take stem cells from adults as well, you know, and see what we can get. Yeah. Because there is no biblical worldview in that, in that regard. Um, so to the scientist who says, well, Alan, listen, um, you know, we have the potential to solve, you know, to, to deal on a high level with uh, stopping cancer or stopping HIV or whatever it might be. Uh, how do you respond to somebody who, who makes that declaration? Well, I would say, first of all, um, you don't have, okay, so I would say there are, there's a lot of ethical problems with using embryonic stem cells. Namely, you're killing innocent human beings. And even if you don't believe in, you know, God or human beings are made in the image of God, you cannot, die, you cannot deny that you are killing an innocent human being because for the most part, biologists will agree that from the first moments of its existence, 
an organism conceived from human sperm and egg is a human being. That is the beginning of human life. Okay? Now, they might not attribute it as valuable human life, but it, no, without question, it is human life. Okay? So I'd say, number one, you, sh you could avoid the ethical dilemma or the ethical concerns surrounding killing innocent human beings, number one. Number two, you can, achieve, you can get stem cells from adults. And indeed, adult stem cell research has been going on for decades. And I could provide you with, with, with um, scientific studies that have been published in mainstream medical journals that show how adult stem cells have been used in treating 73 different types of conditions or diseases, mm -hmm. including things like cancer, um, uh, heart attacks, Parkinson's, you know, diabetes, and so on and so forth. So it has actually been extremely promising to use adult stem cells, whereas if you look at you know, uh, the, the human treatments using embryonic stem cell research, the number of successful treatments and to treat a certain number of diseases has been far less. Mm. I'll also add this. In order to use stem cells from a human embryo, you have to um, deal with the problem of tissue rejection. Because say, Kevin, you had a heart attack and part of your heart muscle tissue died. And I also take a human embryo extracted stem cells, coax those stem cells into turning into heart muscle tissue, and then implant it or graft that into your heart, Kevin, your body would mount an immune response against that new tissue because your body knows that's not your tissue. Hmm. So the solution to that problem of tissue rejection is human cloning. Because if we can create a human clone of you, Kevin, at the embryonic stage and then extract your clones stem cells from it and then coax them into turning into heart muscle tissue then when we implant that human tissue into your body your body would not reject it because your body would think it's simply your tissue so now we're introducing a new technology human cloning in order to avoid the problem of tissue rejection and adult stem cell research bypasses that altogether because you don't have to clone anybody if i take your own stem cells from your from your skin turn them into heart muscle tissue and then plant them back into your body, there's no tissue rejection. So that'll be a, an additional benefit of using adult stem cells rather than embryonic stem cells. And that because, is, go ahead. you avoid the whole ethical dilemma of human cloning. Okay, and, and do, you know, as far as human cloning is concerned, um, is this something that people are also still pursuing? I mean, they're pursuing, um, you know, embryonic stem cell research, companies are pushing for that. Is the whole cloning aspect happening too? Is this something that Christians are, are, are having to deal with as far as um, you know, pushing back against cloning also? Oh, yeah. I mean, 16 years ago at the 2004 Democratic National Convention, Ron Reagan, who's the son of President Ronald Reagan, went on, the, went on national television and basically described, although he never said the word cloning, he described the, the, the most popular form of cloning in detail on national television said, we need to vote for this, funding for it. Okay, so, but he didn't use the word cloning because if he said cloning, you'd freak people out. But the description he gave, and you can read the transcript on this, was precisely what's called somatic cell nuclear transfer, which is just a fancy term for the type of cloning that scientists use today. And they've been doing this for years. So we are currently cloning human beings and then trying to use their stem cells for therapy benefits. And, and how does that process take place? I mean, how do you a clone? If, if I wanted to go somewhere and be cloned, I mean, could I legally go somewhere and be cloned? 
Well, so, so we have to distinguish between therapeutic cloning and reproductive cloning. Reproductive cloning is where we take you, Kevin, and try to, um, we, we create a clone of you, and then that, that embryonic form of your clone, we implant in a woman's womb, in her uterus, and then that clone would grow to term, and then it would be born, and then we'd have like a, you'd have basically an identical twin that is, let's just say you were, I'm just going to make this up, let's say you're 30 years old, okay? You're oh, that's, that's good. I like that. That was good. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your identical twin would be 30 years younger than you. Now, that's reproductive cloning, and it's for the most part considered um, unethical by a lot of people, and people are freaked out by that idea. So we but don't that's, do that's totally possible. That's not that's not scientific. Uh, that's not science fiction. That's that's real. You could actually oh, do that. That's right. So currently, there, the efforts to do that have not been successful. We've cloned animals like Dolly the sheep, which is perhaps the most famous example of, of an animal that was cloned. But for some reason, it's been more complicated to do that with humans. But I would argue that it's just a matter of time that will perfect the technology. Most mm. human clones, for some reason, don't live to be very long. But nevertheless, the ability for us to do that, I'm sure, is, is coming. The problem is, is that we're still doing human cloning, but not for reproductive purposes, but rather for therapeutic processes, therapeutic benefits. Meaning, we're creating human clones, but we're killing them by the time they reach a week or so old, because we're just simply extracting their stem cells from them to use them for some sort of therapeutic benefit. Mm. And this is my, well, one of my major concerns with cloning. It's not so much that we're creating human beings in this sort of non-traditional fashion, which it could be argued this is immoral in itself. The problem with cloning is that every time you clone a human being, that clone will be seen as less than human. It'll be less than valuable. And, instead of, and that clone will be simply seen as a means to some other valuable end, hmm. which is you know, helping you, Kevin, with your heart attack, with the fact that part of your heart muscle tissue is dead and it's not functioning well. Well, how do we repair that? Create a clone of yourself. We'll extract its stem cells, which in essence kills your clone. And then we use those stem cells for your benefit. So the, yeah. so the goal is good, but the, the means by which we do it is, I would argue, immoral. And so, you know, from a biblical spec perspective, when we look at the issue of um, abortion, when we look at the issue of cloning, when we, we look at the issue of stem cell research, you know, people, people say, hey, um, I mean, the justifications are, are numerous. Um, uh, this child is uh, being born to a mother that can't take care of it. Um, we can cure cancer if we do this stem cell research. Um, if we do the cloning, we add to the, the utility of a person's life in the long term. Um, you know, from a, from a biblical perspective, uh, the big picture here is uh, the value of human life. Is this the big difference here? Um, between, yeah. a, between so, a humanist position and, and the biblical pers uh, perspective? Sure. I mean, like I said, I, I don't disagree that it's a good thing to pursue treating disease and disability, you know, children who are born with various conditions and whatever. Like, so to the degree that we can treat those people and help them care for them, by all means, I'm all for that, okay? The point I'm simply making is we don't have to kill innocent human beings to do it. We can use adult stem cells to treat these conditions. And, and just to give you an example with regards to heart attacks, um, it was published back in, I think it was 2010, in the New England, uh, let's see, 
no, I'm sorry, the, uh, the journal Circulation, which deals with heart conditions and so on and so forth, you can basically take stem cells from your own hip, put them in a syringe, inject them directly into your heart, and those stem cells regrow new heart muscle tissue. We had a guy, and I can, again, I can point to the, uh, the article on this. He had a, a, a cancerous tumor growing in his trachea, which is your windpipe where you breathe in. Mm-hmm. Doctor said, sorry, man, you, you're going to die. You're, you're going to die of suffocation before the cancer kills you because this tumor is growing in your windpipe. But some other doctors said, hey, you know what? We, we have an idea. We can use your own adult stem cells to treat you. And so what do they do? They took his stem cells from his body, you know, just, you know, which of course didn't kill him at all, just took some stem cells from him. They created a scaffolding, which is like a, a form, a, a plastic form that is in the shape of his trachea. They put his stem cells on this form, created a new trachea using his own stem cells. They surgically removed his old trachea, put his new trachea in, and now he has a near normal life expectancy. Wow. So, I mean, this is like science fiction. We're literally creating body parts yeah. from our own <laughs> stem cells. And we're putting them back into our bodies with no tissue rejection, no need to clone. So I would say, why don't we pursue these methods of treatment that are known to be successful, that don't have the ethical problems associated with cloning, that don't have the tumors that naturally grow when we create clones and then try to use their stem cells. I mean, there's so many advantages to this. Yeah. I'm saying, let's use that approach to treat disease and disability. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, now, you know, so when you're talking to somebody about these sorts of issues and all, and let's say, you know, um, obviously as a Christian, the end goal isn't just to, to persuade somebody that, um, Hey, this is the better way to go. Um, and you said, you know, you said a humanist can't ground their morality and all they might, they might think it's not right, but they have no basis for that. Um, where do you go from there in a discussion? Do you, uh, you know, do you, um, get into this discussion and then come over to how do you, how do you um, segue into a discussion about Jesus Christ? Well, okay. So that's a great question. So, uh, you know, as an apologist, mm-hmm. somebody who's involved in, in teaching others to know how to defend the faith or articulate uh, the truth of Christianity or respond to objections. Um, I'm not suggesting that when I'm uh, talking to somebody um, who's not a Christian, that my, initial conversation or the the lead topic that I'm going to bring up is something like bioethics or Islam or homosexuality or abortion. If I'm just talking to somebody and I have the opportunity to to direct that conversation in any direction, I'm going to present the gospel of Jesus Christ Mm. (laughs) because that's really all that matters. I'm not concerned that they would hold my view on abortion or bioethics or on homosexuality or whatever, because even if they were to agree with me about that what I would argue is a secondary matter, um, their eternal destiny would still be in jeopardy. So I would present my, the direction I would go is I present the gospel of Jesus Christ. If they said, no, I, I don't want to become a Christian because, and then they raised the subject of say bioethics or homosexuality or some sexual matter, you know, well, I, you know, I'm living with my girlfriend and I don't want to follow your, your God's morality or whatever. Okay. Now I'm going to then, go and start talking about this maybe secondary matter about sexual ethics or bioethics or whatever. 
but that's not going to be my initial sort of lead into a conversation. So this is why, although I teach heavily about things like Islam or homosexuality or abortion or bioethics, it's only to equip the Christian so that in the event that they get into a conversation where the objection is sexuality or bioethics, they will be equipped to handle that particular objection and then hopefully then redirect the conversation back to the most important subject, which is the gospel, you know? Mm. So um, I like to be knowledgeable about this so that I, I can present what I believe is a ethical, knowledgeable um, response uh, so that they won't see me as just some, you know, ignorant person who's just sort of less, you know, has a religious ax to grind. But rather, look, I'm informed about this. I can give an articulate view and I can ground my morality in something, you know. And so hopefully that will give them a little bit of respect for, for myself or for the Christian who's articulating it. And then hopefully that they can eventually redirect the conversation back to more substantial matters, you know. Yeah, like that's great. That's great. Uh, if you're just tuning in, my guest today is Alan Schleeman. He's with Stand to Reason and uh, with Greg Kokel. And he's been with them for since 2004. STR.org, it's a fantastic website with thousands of articles up there that you can actually reference that cover all kinds of difficult issues. Uh, my website is educateforlife.org. We've got a full curriculum up there. Uh, it's a worldview curriculum that's meant to help you and your family and your friends really develop a firm foundation. We're kind of, uh, kind of uh, hand in hand here. Uh, working together on this. But um, Alan, so along those same lines, um, I, I wanted to throw this question out, which I touched on earlier, which is that, you know, Catholicism teaches that contraception, excuse me, contraception is intrinsically evil, um, man-made contraception. So my question is, is why is it, why is the Protestant view, um, the evangelical Christian view, different from the Catholic view in that particular issue, um, how would you respond to somebody who's a Catholic and says, well, you know, why would you endorse uh, contraception? I mean, how can you say that's biblical? How, how would you respond to somebody in that situation? Sure. Well, so uh, there's a lot more differences than just the, the subject of contraception when it comes to Protestants and Catholics. Yeah. And the reason is, and this is, and this is the key to understanding why there's even a difference, is that they don't hold to this idea that we, uh, uh, that scripture alone is the final authoritative um, source for all faith and values. They would say, yes, there is scripture. We do believe in the Bible, but also they believe in the, in, uh, uh, you know, the Pope's teaching as well as historical, historical church teaching as well of the, of the Catholic church. So they actually have three sources of authority that inform their thinking on theology and ethical matters. Now, as it pertains to the subject of contraception, because of this, there is this theological tradition that says that sex and procreation cannot be uh, separated. And so this is why they hold to this idea that once you engage in the act of uh, a sexual act, you have to be open to, um, pr to procreation. Okay? Mm -hmm. Now, if the Catholics ask me, well, why are you in favor of contraception or why don't you have a problem with it? I'd say because in the forms of contraception that I'm okay with, I don't believe contraception kills an innocent human being. But I would qualify that by saying some forms of so-called contraception do run the risk of actually being an abortifacient or having an abortifacient property. Mm -hmm. Meaning some forms that we think are merely contraceptive, that we think 
merely prevent sperm and egg meeting actually end up killing an already conceived human being. And um, I know this probably isn't super popular to say, but um, virtually all hormonal forms of birth control, like the pill or, or um, you know, the patch or, you know, in these injections or even IUDs have three mechanisms by which they prevent um, birth. <laughs> Uh, two of those mechanisms are truly contraceptive, but one of the mechanisms actually has an abortifacient property. And so I think, so I would agree with the Catholic in some sense that yes, some means of birth control are ethically problematic. Yeah. But uh, anything that is truly contraceptive, like say um, a condom or a barrier method of sorts, a sponge, I wouldn't have any ethical problems because they truly prevent conception. But some forms of birth control also end up killing an already conceived human being, in which case I would agree with the Catholic that is problematic. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And I wanted to touch on one more issue, and that issue is the issue of, um, of euthanasia. And, you know, there's a big movement in our um, country today, which basically says that, uh, you know, a lot of people say, look, once it gets to a certain point, I just want to, I, I don't want to be kept alive any longer. I want to be able to die. Um, where, as a Christian, you know, wanting to have a biblical worldview, um, where do you fall on that, and how do you how do you have that discussion? Because it, because yeah. people bring it up all the time. By allowing yeah. them to live longer, you're actually um, you're hurting them, or you're violating their wishes. They want to go. Uh, you know, what's the biblical perspective there? Yeah, well, the biblical worldview says it's wrong to kill an innocent human being, and I would add, even when that human being is yourself. Okay, so from a biblical perspective, we, we are not the rightful owners of our own life. And that's why it's wrong to kill innocent human beings, even when that human being is yourself. Physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia, which are, I would argue, morally very similar. The only difference is, in one case, you're asking someone, uh, you're taking your own life, in a sense, by your own hand, versus euthanasia, where someone else is taking your, your life. But in both cases, an innocent human being is being killed. Therefore, I would argue in both cases, it's biblically inconsistent. Okay. Um, now, the, the, so there's a lot of problems with, with both of these. But uh, the main problem is that it kills an innocent human being. And I would add also that when it comes to physician-assisted suicide, which is what has been made legal in several states around the country, and will probably, you know, that's the direction we're going to go in before we eventually hit full-blown euthanasia. But the problem occurs when you say that someone should have a right to die. The problem is, is that very quickly turns into what I call a duty to die. Okay? Mm. So for example, once you say, hey, you know what? Um, if you're you know, elderly or maybe you have some sort of debilitating condition and you want to have this right to die. The problem with that is that very quickly our society morphs that and, that, and it, it kind of leads down the slippery slope to a duty to die. So, for example, you know, grandpa gets ra rather old. He's now in his 80s. He's got all kinds of medical conditions. He's not expected to live very much longer, maybe a year or so, maybe five years. And what happens is family around him says, you know what, grandpa, look, I mean, you know, you know it's, it's legal to kill yourself, right? You know we have physicians to suicide. You know it's legal. So instead of you being a burden on us 
instead of you squandering your, you know, this inheritance and all of your estate, you know, I mean, that, that option's there for you, you know, grandpa, you know. So notice that there becomes a subtle, and I, maybe they wouldn't say it that way, but I'm sure. just saying this is what is implied. And for grandpa himself, he realized that's the case. Hey, look, I know I could kill myself. I, you know, physician assisted suicide is legal here. Man, maybe I, I ought to exit, you know, exit this life and not be a burden on my kids. And so that pressure automatically begins to occur both in their mind and in the mind of those people who remain potentially to inherit his estate and or don't want to be burdened with caring for him. Yeah. So I think physician assisted suicide is a recipe for elder abuse. That, that's, that's the bottom line. Yeah, absolutely. Because of this idea where the right to die leads to become, leads to a duty to die. That's interesting because that, that was the practice in India where when the, the husband would pass away, the widow was expected to actually die with the husband on the, right. uh, you know, to, to be cremated. And uh, it, because it was her duty to, like you said, not be a burden on the rest of society and to, to, to go away. And uh, that's horrible. So... Uh, yeah, I can see how yeah, that. Kevin, I'll add. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'll, I'll add. You know, yeah, sorry. I was going to say, I used to be a physical therapist uh, for about 10 years before I worked for Stand to Reason. And during yeah. that time as a physical therapist, I worked in many hospitals and was involved in, in people who were reaching the end of life and, and evaluating their capacity. And so, you know, one of the things I noticed is we created what's called nursing homes. Now, uh, by the way, just full disclosure, I'm not here to, to to say nursing homes are always wrong, okay? Yeah. But I just want to give this illustration. For many years, it was expected that we children would care for our elderly parents as they got older, okay? Eventually, what happened is we developed nursing homes or extended care facilities or whatever. And so now there was an option, a, 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 a possibility, an option to put your father or mother or whoever in a nursing home so someone else can care for them. Well, once you give people the opportunity, the possibility for that, it very quickly evolves into a duty to use that care or that mm. option, you know? Yeah. So now it's no longer understood that, hey, when my parents get older, I'm going to care for them and, and love them and, and provide a, a dignified opportunity for them to pass away under my loving care in my home or in their home. Rather now it's like, oh, well, hey, you're now need care. And so you have a duty to utilize this option of a nursing home to be there, you know, so mm -hmm. that I can be free with my life to carry on and do whatever I want to do. Yeah. yeah. Now, again, I'm not saying everybody who puts their, you know, their elderly parent in, in a nursing home is doing something immoral. I'm just trying to show the, the slippery slope that occurs when you provide the person an option, it very quickly evolves into a duty to take advantage of that option. Yeah. And the same thing I believe is happening with physicians who suicide. suicide. The, the right to die leads to a duty to die. Mm, that's a great point. Um, yeah. So I find all of these issues are interrelated and they all have to do with almost this kind of... Um, selfishness in the sense that, okay, I'm going to make myself the priority and I'm going to take this convenient road rather than work through relationships and the difficulties and the, the different uh, things in, in order to, you know, uh, do the right thing, which is really be loving and, 
and uh, find a way to get get the solutions without uh, jeopardizing you know your ethics I guess right so uh, that's awesome well uh, Alan uh, we're just about out of time here um, I just want to say thanks a lot for being on the program today it's a big blessing to have you Kevin thanks for having me it was great to meet you and finally be able to chat about something and yeah these are tough issues and you know as Christians I just uh, you know we're at standard reason just hoping to train Christians to be faithful ambassadors. So having knowledge and, and the capacity to speak on these issues is what we're, we're passionate about. So yeah, I love it. Uh, I'm happy to talk about it, you know? Yeah, it's fantastic. Well, um, for those of you listening, I hope you enjoyed the program today. Um, you can touch base with Alan, if you want at standreasonstr.org. And uh, he speaks all over the place. So if these are, this is a particular issue you want to tackle, you know, look him up and, um, yeah, if you're in Southern California, he's here. He's also, you know, speaking up in LA or, or wherever all over the place. So uh, please check him out. My website's educateforlife.org. And we'll be back with you again next week. We have um, all kinds of amazing interviews lined up and uh, interviewed Beckett, uh, Beckett uh, last week, a uh, former homosexual uh, man who was in the lifestyle forever and uh, was connected with all kinds of celebrities in Hollywood and just felt an emptiness in his life and ultimately... Um, met Jesus Christ and had a supernatural experience. You can check that out um, also along with many other interviews on our YouTube channel. And um, uh, you can also check out the curriculum on educateforlife.org. I hope you have a fantastic uh, Friday coming up here and a great weekend and look forward to being with you again. Thanks a lot for being here. See you later, Alan. Bye. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye.